0: How are things?
1: Um, unproductive, to say the least.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, uh, it's
1: it's challenging, I think, you know, switching to a working from home situation. I mean, to be fair, this is academia, so unproductivity is part of the equation. <laughs> but, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, I, I don't know about you, but my working strategy is, you know, I go through f- cycles of intense productivity and in cycles of, Desperate unproductivity.
0: I mean, when I was in school, that was exactly how it was. Um, and I right. th- and I think academia is um is uh, I I don't okay, I don't think it's unique exactly in this respect, but it is one of those kind of fields, right, where um because it doesn't necessarily lend itself to routine, so. Mm right I, I it's not so much that you're dependent on um cycles of like being in the flow and then cycles of being out of it but um because the n- the nature of it is that you don't you can establish a routine right to kind of like set yourself mm-hmm. up f- to be productive but then um within the context of the time that you set aside uh whether anything substantive gets done is not 100% within your control.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, very often you're trying to work on problems that are complex, difficult, and, uh, you know, in the face of distractions and also in the face of, um, I mean, distractions can come from many places, right? It can come from, you know, procrastination, but it can also come from just uh, reading too many papers sometimes. That, that does happen, right? When you're, right. say, so you're trying to analyze a complex data set and then you, you know, you dig into the literature to see, You know what methods have been used to analyze something, and then you dig and you fall into this little bit of a rabbit hole. Uh Uh, Either number one, trying to find methods that work, or number two, trying to make a method work.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because
1: a lot of you know analyses these days are computational, and you know anyone can tell you computational analyses can be complicated.
0: Yes, Um, that I mean that's just the that's the nature of anything that is uh, computing related yeah because because pretty much especially when it comes to you know something that is analytical in nature you're operating at a very high level of abstraction and so Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things uh, can go wrong but you don't necessarily know uh, until (laughs) you are (laughs) quite deep into the process and then you kind of well I mean you know yeah
1: things might go wrong uh, without you knowing until well after the fact as well. Um, yeah. This is a funny coincidence. A paper just came out in Nature this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting paper. Uh, quite a controversial paper as well. Okay, um, okay just to, just to give some background. Um, one of the things that, uh, as evolutionary biologists, we do is we look at um, rates of diversification across the tree of life. Okay. So, for example, right. you know... Um, Okay, let's take as a baseline example, because I study birds, let's look at birds, right? Now, if I look at the bird tree of life, okay, um, I can basically use uh, stochastic methods or analytical methods to try to quantify the rate at which diversification, or in this case, speciation, has happened okay. uh, in, at certain points of time across the bird right. tree of life. So, so just I'll to, know, for just example, that, clarif- Okay, mm-hmm. actually,
0: since you're going to give an example, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, 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 just to give an example, we know, for example, looking at you know, uh, again, without any visuals, the bird tree of life, we know that around the time where the asteroid slammed into Earth about sixty-five million years ago, mm-hmm. there was a, right after that there was a huge flowering of bird diversity. Interesting. And okay. we know this because we can see the number of you know lineages, number of branches on the tree suddenly explode in number. Right. Okay. Right. And so this diversification rate uh, estimation process um, is basically a, a suite of statistical tools that we apply to these uh, trees in okay. order to quantify um, you know, sudden changes in diversification rate. And this relies on the, the, proce- the, 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 the overall method or the, the most popular method that people use is called a birth-death process. A birth process is okay. when a new lineage arises and a death is when an extinction happens. Right, okay. So, lineage dies. Right. Right. And so, uh, estimating these two values gives, you know, uh, gives you a birth uh, coefficient and a death coefficient. And when you take birth minus death, that's your diversification rate.
0: Okay, right. Makes sense.
1: Simple, right? Okay. Yeah. So... Um, this has been an extremely popular sort of analytical method. It's been used for the last, I think, decade or so. A whole bunch of methods have come up, you know, using, basically relying on this process mm-hmm. to look at diversification rates and not just with birds, but with, you know, bacteria. Well, bacteria is where we where we fall into problems, but with reptiles, with mammals, with plants, etc., etc. Now, a paper just came out this week suggesting mm-hmm. that this entire method is problematic.
0: Okay. <clears throat> right. Okay, what's what's the reason for that?
1: (laughs) Okay, so basically, when you uh, uh, going back to what I explained earlier, when you try to estimate the diversification rate, you start out with first a phylogenetic tree, right? So a a a diagram that gives you that shows the evolutionary relationships and the evolutionary trajectory of a particular group of organisms. Okay, right, and then running along this tree, you apply this birth death process. To estimate diversification rates across time, and
0: right. then
1: you know the the, the the program that you use, whatever program, will generate a series of models and it will try to fit parameters, and that will eventually give rise to a, a ideal model, mm-hmm. right? That gives you a certain set of parameters from which you estimate your your diversification rate. Okay. Okay. Now, what this paper shows mathematically um, is that for any particular tree. Uh-huh. There might be an infinite number of optimal solutions using the birth-death process.
0: Okay, what what you do you mean? You can see by... how this is
1: problematic. This means that there can be no real answer from one tree. So, if right. I have a tree, a phylogenetic tree, say of of bird evolution, uh-huh. I may arrive at it is entirely theoretically possible for me to arrive at multiple solutions. Uh-huh. And multiple diversification rates, without giving any ability to distinguish which, uh, as to which one is the more real diversification rate. Right. Okay. So wait, this so, is a you know this becomes a philosophical problem, no ability problem.
0: So in, in just uh, just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, so the existing the existing like methods of calculating the di- diversification rate effectively, they can produce multiple or infinite solutions like if you is if yes. if if you are creating like a solve for x kind of situation, like in yes. theory x can be any infinite number of okay I see uh yes, yes that would be a problem
1: you can see how this is problematic, so you know mm-hmm. there have been there, there has been quite a fair amount of critique this paper is just you know barely a week old, uh, uh-huh. although the preprint has been up for several months right now, but you can see how this is potentially problematic because so much of our existing literature has already you know looked at you know. Has, has used um, um, this method to infer diversification rates. And this paper suggests that we should be extremely sceptical of right. what has come before. <laughs> um, there has been some pushback against this paper. Um, one uh, prominent critique states that, you know, this method ignores the, the, uh, the importance of assessing complexity, which is a real thing, right? You know, when we use things like Kaikis information criterion to choose the best model, we are okay. basically choosing the best model on the basis of parsimony, right? Right, um, okay. Okay, just for, for, for the statistically uninitiated, the Kaikis Information Criterion is a um, is a metric. It's a way of assessing how complex and how simple models are. Right, okay. So given a a, a a amount of data that you have and a model that you've constructed to explain this data or a series of models that you've constructed to explain this data, the model that, number one, explains the most amount of variation in your data, but number two, with the least number of parameters. It's it's a statistical
0: Occam's razor.
1: Yes, it is Occam's razor, basically. The simplest but the most uh, comprehensive model wins in this case. And so so what some um, 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 statisticians are saying about this paper is that this paper doesn't really account for uh, complexity. Right, and how you right. know, maybe the best model is the simplest one. but I you know And, and I ha- ha- had the opportunity to, to have a, a conversation with the author of this paper just last week. Um, and he points out, one of the authors, it's two authors, but what he pointed out was that they actually did... Well, I mean, they didn't really do a comprehensive test, but they did run this through an empirical data set. Mm-hmm. And they found that he was able to obtain two models of equal simplicity, and he okay. couldn't tell which one was better. And they both gave rise to different... Uh, uh, evolutionary dynamics,
0: right, right. Okay, well, that would also be a problem. Um,
1: right. So, so complexity is one thing, but if you cannot distinguish between equally parsimonious models, uh-huh.
0: then how? Just out of curiosity, if it if he has run it against like empirical data sets, are there any cases where the where the Occam's razor solution is not the empirical solution?
1: Um. That's a good question. I don't think they ran this across multiple imp- just they just ran this on like one data set as, oh, okay. as a proof of concept. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um so basically a lot of work remains to be done uh, which is know, the end so far of as this field is concerned. I mean, that's
0: the that's the ending of every paper.
1: Fair enough, but in this yeah. case, you know, they've they've opened a can of worms. Uh-huh. And, you know, how 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 wide and deep this can goes remains to be seen.
0: <sighs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a wormhole. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, it's I mean but it's interesting, right? It, yeah. it does. You know, and, and to be fair, this isn't something that is necessarily new, but this provides a, a fairly rigorous mm-hmm. sort of um, theoretical basis for 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 critiquing this set of methods. And you know, the problem is that now that you know this has come out into the wild, how will this impact everyone's research, at least people whose research is you know related to this field? It's it's right. problematic.
0: Right. I mean the <laughs> Well, that's hard to say, right? Because realistically, if, Mm, if a research project is, yeah, I mean, realistically, if a research project is, you know, is like well on its way to completion or well on its, you know, like you're, you're, you're deep enough into it that you have limited options for changing course. And in realistically, what it will be is a lot of work that's already been done will just be presented as, um, we already did this work, so you might as well take a look at it. And then, <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, that's usually how it goes. Um... Right. I
1: mean, the part of the difficulty of this process, and as, as I mentioned just now, this relies on a, a birth and death process. Now, right. estimating births is not that difficult, but estimating deaths is challenging, especially the further back you go in time, Yeah. right? If I'm looking at very shallow timescales, say the last 10,000 years, mm-hmm. um, number of births will be fairly well understood. Right. But, you know, the deeper I go back in time as well, actually, well, even for shallow periods of time, the prob- well, the shallow per- for shallow periods of time, you're, ass- you're assuming that the number of deaths is trivial. But the deeper I right. go back in time, the more extinctions are likely to have happened that I cannot possibly estimate with any sense of um, 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 certainty unless right. I have fossils. But fossils are rare in yep. general. Yep. So that you know provides some complication, basically, as to you know, and, and but you know, okay. Moving away from this one very specific example, this is you know a very nice philosophical problem to have as well.
0: A, a nice, ni- nice, philosophical oh, not nice, problem Oh, nice, but this is
1: a, this is a good case study. This okay. is a good case study for for a philosophical problem in
0: science. Right. It's like we can create these metrics, but to the extent, like to what extent are these metrics built on assumptions? that are mm-hmm. built on assumptions that cannot be tested.
1: I mean it is a knowability problem. Right. How do yeah. we know that what we what we you know what we derive is real.
0: Right, yeah, yeah.
1: And in I this mean, case, in, in yeah.
0: I mean I was gonna Sorry. just talk about like abstraction in general and the fact that, right, mm-hmm. when I mean in academia you're you're operating at very high levels of abstraction and that depends on every level below it being as yeah as uh solid as possible, which um, is by the nature of abstraction is that you are making compromises in some way right to create like an, a more efficient representation of information mm-hmm. and right. Uh, right. yeah
1: I mean this is re- very rapidly becoming my catchphrase in grad school. It's garbage in garbage out uh,
0: well yeah <laughs> if
1: you're, if your if your assumptions are not correct. Then whatever conclusions you derive from your model will be equally incorrect.
0: Right. So I mean, there is um, there there is a, uh, okay. So he's actually a programmer. Um, mm-hmm. but he's written some very influential uh, articles in the past. So, um, Joel Spolsky, who I cannot remember like, exactly what his relationship to. Stack Exchange, Stack Overflow is um, his company. Fort Creek Software was the one that made Trello before it was sold
1: oh, okay. to,
0: I think, I don't remember. If, was it Microsoft? I know now it's under Atlassian. It just got sold to Atlassian, but I don't know who was the owner before that. Mm-hmm. So, oh, he was
1: born in Albuquerque. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So Joel Spolsky, he has um, an influential blog called Joel on Software that's very sparsely updated at mm-hmm. this point. But um, one, one year when I was uh, an undergrad, during the summer, I just kind of decided that my summer education shall be to find some interesting blogs and just read the entire thing. So ah. I think it was my, um, my rising senior summer, I want to say. So I read the whole of Stratechery by Ben Thompson. At right. the time, it was very new, so it wasn't hard to read everything. Um, And it was actually the fact that I managed to read everything on Stratechery that I was like, hmm, you know, I should find a different blog and uh, do the same thing. And I think I read almost all of Joel on software. Uh, And I may have... I think I did read a lot of Subtraction.com, which is um, Koi Vin's blog. Uh, At the time, Mm -hmm. he was either with New York Times or he just left the New York Times. But... um, I, I'm not sure where he is now. I just every now and then I I hear him on a on a podcast chilling for um, Adobe. So maybe he's with Adobe. I have no idea. But um anyway, yeah, those were the three blogs that I remember like reading like back to front. And um in Gerald Spolsky's blog, there is a there is one post that he wrote about. Um I forget the title, but it was about abstraction. Right? And right. he he like the law of abstractions, or no, I think he called it the law of leaky abstractions, was that for every non-trivial abstraction, right? Um okay, every non-trivial abstraction will be leaky. And what he meant by that was that if your abstraction, right, is uh it allows you to operate at a higher level, right? In a meaningful way, it will also contain assumptions that mm-hmm. have the potential to prove to be proved to be wrong.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there will be yeah, there will be assumptions that that constrain the operability of this abstraction.
0: Correct. And I mean, I think
1: right. So I mean.
0: Sorry. I was going to say, like, for computer science, right? Um, if you if you think about, you know, a, a lot of the way that like computer science as an as an um, academic subject, right, is conceived. Um, mm-hmm. Often, you know, you start with ideas of like zeros and ones, and um, like logic gates, and you know how the logic gates are actually how they function, like literally how the circuits work and things like that, right? If at least if you're mm-hmm. in a Department that con- combines electrical engineering and computer science, which is not uncommon um, but often right, if you think about how how you know um, logic gates were created, they were done with mechanical switches originally, right yes, and um, the thing about mechanical switches is that yeah, you can create a a logic gate right that behaves mechanically. Um, and you would expect that, hey, if I put in these two inputs, then I will get a particular output given this particular logic gate. Right? So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of like going far. I feel like, you know, if I'm, I'm in a situation where if, if you know what I'm talking about, you already know what I'm going to say. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have no idea what I mean. But, right. but it's like a logic gate, right? It's like, you know, N and, and OR or exclusive OR, right? So it's like, if I have two inputs, if I put in one and one, right, then my AND logic gate should give me one. Okay? Right, yes. And if I have one and zero, then my end logic gate should th- give me zero. And like, mm-hmm. on a right. very fundamental level, this is how all computers work, right, at the very lower, yes. lowest level of abstraction. Um sure. so Some would even say not even the absolute lowest, right? But at a very low level of abstraction, that's, you know, logic gates are how computers work, and your computer is mm-hmm. billions and trillions of logic gates all flipping, you know, um, in quick succession, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. So before we had transistors, right? All these logic gates were mechanical; they were physically flipping gates. And if you are a computer scientist or a logician at the time thinking about logic gates, you're like, "Ha, huh, yeah, okay, I'm going to sit down and draw on paper." Like I'll put together this what is effectively a you know in, in modern terms is a chip, right? It's a series yes. of logic gates that can do things, right? It's yes. Just, you know, here is I'm I'm going to create a series of logic gates that will allow me to perform addition, right? Yes. Okay. You take and a then, bunch
1: of inputs and then transform it to an output.
0: Correct. Correct. Um, but because those physi- those um logic gates were physical. Right, you've created the abstraction of the logic mm-hmm. gate, but it's leaky. Mm-hmm. It's leaky in the sense that your physical gate, right, which consists of physical mechanical switches flipping on and off, they wear out. Oh yeah, yeah, right. and that is <laughs> that's your leaky abstraction, right? Right. So okay, okay, all of this is like very. Hard to and that's also why like transistors were such a big deal because transistors are electrical switches, yes right and obviously yes. yep. they also wear out, but the life cycle is sufficiently long and the failure right. rate is sufficiently low that your abstraction is now much less leaky compared to you know mechanical switches
1: on a statistical level as well, you know um, a lot of us we learn about you know linear regressions uh, or at least very basic linear regressions in high yep. school. Right. Yep. So we learn it okay, if I have a series of points I can, you know, plot a best fit line. Right. Across these points. And yep. you know, um this best fit best fit line gives me a trend and you know, yep. we don't ask any questions about the best fit line. Actually that's a perfect no That's a perfect example
0: of a of an abstraction <coughs> that has the potential right. to be extremely leaky.
1: Okay, and you know what, what you only learn really at the university level, I don't think we learned about this even in junior college, mm-hmm. um, you know, is that a linear regression has a whole bunch of assumptions. <laughs> yeah. For a linear regression to be valid, your residuals, meaning that, sorry, <clears throat> the deviance of all the raw data points from mm-hmm. the best fit line has to be normally distributed.
0: Right, right, right. right? Oh, You're assuming okay, that, I see. You know,
1: yeah, your residuals are distributed yeah. normally relative to the best fit line. Right. And when that doesn't happen, then your linear regression is basically invalid. Right. right, And so there are all these assumptions, you know, and then you have equal variances in terms of your variables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, th- these are things that, you know, a lot of us don't really get taught at mm. early stages. And we only really yeah. figure out about this when we deal with it at that much higher level or when, we be- when, when it becomes very applied.
0: Right. Yep. Yeah, correct. Actually, on the note of uh, mechanical switches, so Matt Parker of um, mm-hmm. the, the mathematician, I actually don't know what to call him, cause he occupies a strange spot in um in uh the educational world i guess but uh matt parker who you know has he appears on he has his own youtube channel called stand up maths and then he um he appears on like a number of other um youtube channels uh he's often on number file he was recently on um, adam savage's uh youtube channel as well um right. so a while ago I, I I think at this point it's a couple of years a few years ago he actually did um and he actually put together um a domino based computer so
1: did he now
0: yeah so it is it is exactly <laughs> actually what I mentioned earlier so it's it is um uh it's a set of dominoes right it's a domino pattern mm-hmm. that yep. will take i think four <laughs> bits. Right, so yeah, it will take four bits and then produce uh, an output. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, right. Or I think it's is it like two pairs or two? I I don't remember, but it will it will take a number of bits. Let's just say, and then it will produce an output. Mm. So it's an addition. It's a it's a it's a chip, effectively, but in domino form. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about right. like the chip that like a very basic integrated chip, right, that you might be able to buy in an electronics store what you're doing is that it has like, say, like eight legs, right? Mm -hmm. If you imagine those those chips, they have like eight legs or 16 legs or whatever. And what you're doing is you send electricity, you send electrical signals into Mm -hmm. a number of those legs. And then it does something inside the chip, which is basically what the dominoes do, which I'm about to describe. And then electricity comes out of the other eight legs of the chip. Right. right. And, yes, um, yes. Or it doesn't come out, in, in which case it will, you know, it, that indicates a zero. That's your ones and zeros. Yes. Electricity in is, is yeah. a one. Electricity no, not running is a zero. And, um, so what he would do is he would ask volunteers. And I think this was, this was somewhere in the UK where he set up this like little domino, um, exhibition. And then he would ask for volunteers and be like, Okay, give me a number. Like, okay, four. Okay, give me a number. Seven. All right. So four in binary is... uh, Four in binary is one, zero, zero. Right? Okay, yes. And then seven in binary is one, one, one. So he would be like, okay, over here, we will knock this domino over. That's four. Yes. And then over here, we'll knock these three dominoes over, and that's seven. And then at the end, right, you should get... Uh, 11, which is God knows what mm-hmm. in binary, it's 1011. 1, right? So at the end uh, uh it, okay. yes. it, it, it's one zero one one. Then at the end you'll I'm a get... biologist,
1: math is not my forte.
0: <laughs> yeah. Then you'll get these um three dominoes knocked over, but one of them, mm-hmm. you know, there there is a, a domino in between that's not knocked over. Right? Mm-hmm. So right. I mean like that's yep. in theory what it's supposed to be. But because dominoes are.
1: Yeah, what this reminds me of is uh the people who built computational engines on Minecraft.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, (laughs) I, I imagine which is
1: basically the same principle.
0: It's the same principle, except that it's a a whole like meta. It's a whole new meta level of thing because you've built computers already, and now you're using computers to represent something (laughs) physical. (laughs) Uh, it but turtles a, all the way down. Yeah, it turtles all the way down, exactly. So, um, in, with, with the, with a domino computer, of course, dominoes are extremely physical objects. Right? Mm, and right. the relationship that they have to each other is extremely physical. So, yes. you've built this massive, like, domino computer and then, um, he asks his volunteers for numbers, and then he knocks over this domino and that domino and, and so on. but um with your domino computer, right, um, There is, it's extremely leaky in that any one of the dominoes could fall incorrectly.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and
0: yeah, and that's actually what happened at one of his demonstrations. Um, one of okay. the dominoes in the chain like didn't fall. And then it produced oh, the wrong number,
1: <laughs> which brings us to the whole question of Bayesian. No, I'm not going to go there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, actually, I mean this. This, you know, this reminds me. Sorry. Yeah.
0: I, no, I was actually going to say. So is the funny it... thing is, I was. Um, I'm I'm currently doing the, the intro to CS50 course on um, edX. Mm-hmm. So intro to CS50 mm-hmm. is um, intro to computer science. Is, is it the... MIT or Harvard? Harvard, Harvard. Uh, and it's Harvard, an, right, it's okay. an Excellent course. Um, right. so you can see that if, you know, in person, like for a, for a in person course, it's already like extremely well designed. Like the pedagogy right. is like super well thought out. Um, yeah. they kind of deliver, they deliver the material in like exactly the, um, uh, in exactly the order that you would want. And also because computer science is, is both very practical and very theoretical. Like, on the one hand, all yes. the theory doesn't do you any good if you can't actually do the programming, and on the other hand, a lot of people who are self-taught um, programmers pick up a lot of bad habits because they never learn the theory. So, <laughs> I think
1: they, Yale undergrad computer science undergrads are supposed to take the CS5 courses. Yes, of the, uh,
0: I think uh, I think they. They uh, both. They both.
1: And judging by that. the whining I hear from Yale undergrads so, uh-huh. you know, on Facebook about uh-huh. this, it's a pretty good course.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, from what you can tell, it's a really, really well-designed course, um, taught by someone mm. who has been doing this for a very long time, uh, which is actually quite remarkable right because before. David Malin, who teaches the course, is actually mm-hmm. pretty young, but um, but he's been is teaching that right. Oh shit! Yeah, he's been teaching since he was an undergrad, so he's had a lot of experience. Oh, so. Yeah. Um, the the interesting thing is, like, this is lesson two, by the way. Uh, I'm I'm still in lecture two. So uh, at, in lecture two, right, he he was talking about the idea of like um, um, data types, like floats, right. So mm, right. Um, yeah. a float, to, without going into all the computer science stuff, right, mm-hmm. a float um, is a type of data, right, that stores numbers mm-hmm. and it also stores the position right. of the decimal point. And that's yes, generally right. how you represent decimals uh, in computing, r- and so a real number. A real number, co- correct? Yeah. And mm. so he um he demonstrated, right? He was like, "Okay, this is a float. This is how it works, but it also has limitations." Mm-hmm. So, as an example, he was like, "Okay, I can ask C to display for me this float, right? One divided by ten to one decimal mm-hmm. place." I can ask it to to show me 1 divided by 10 to 10 decimal places. And then I can ask it to show me 1 divided by 10 to 50 decimal places. And at 50, right, you no longer get the exact value, the exact mathematical value of 0.1 with lots of zeros behind. You actually get (laughs) 0.1 Zero 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 zero, then a bunch of random numbers like five six, God knows, like two three four five six. Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And he was like, "Okay, what happened here?" And then, and then, basically, somebody answered, and the the details are not important, at least um, for where we are in the course, right? But basically, Mm -hmm. the computer has to store the data somewhere and it stores yes. it in memory right yes. and at some point when you ask when you ask the program to retrieve this number from memory uh and you ask it for 50 decimal places it starts pulling <laughs> decimal places that actually are not related to the variable that you're asking it for because the variable oh. that you asked it for right is not stored to 50 decimal places but that's right Yeah, if you ask it for 50 decimal places, it will give you 50 decimal places, some of which do not belong to the floating number, to the floating point number. Right? I did
1: not know this. Okay, this is interesting. Oh, wow.
0: And this is another leaky Ah. abstraction. Right? Yes. Um, Actually... this
1: is fascinating. Okay, maybe I should do the CS50 course.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this is is another one of those cases where I think, like, if you're a self-taught programmer versus if you if you have Mm -hmm. somebody who's very experienced to guide you through it. um, Like, for me, um, I am, in a sense, self-taught. My dad is an electrical engineer, so I picked up some stuff from him. I picked up some stuff by reading. I picked up some stuff by Googling and, like, you know, doing my own, like, kind of small programming projects. Uh, And the extent to which floats were explained to me was, like, floats are for decimal point numbers, but they can get yes. a bit weird. But don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I feel mean, put like it this way. Okay. Yeah. That's basically what <laughs> my dad explained to me. A, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. I consider see at least your dad has some theoretical underpinning. Yeah. That, you know, that he didn't quite convey to you in it because he's trying. Well, to I mean, I was beef, like twelve. I or consider something. myself. Yeah. Fair enough. I consider myself a field biologist and a laboratory wet lab biologist. So right. I am not. By any stretch of the imagination of a computational biologist. Right. So all the computational knowledge I have comes from a very applied place. Right. right. I learned coding to get a job done. Yeah. So all that theory never quite came with it in the first place. So yep. this is entirely news to me because mm-hmm. I never actually did go through this process of knowing the, the fundamentals. And, and I mean- you know, now, now I feel mildly motivated to go and <laughs> take the CSVP course.
0: I mean, um, honestly, I think the thing is for most people, right, you are, you never take floats out to 50 decimal places. Right. Fair, unless you're um, a
1: physicist, maybe.
0: Correct. <laughs> In which case, I would hope that you have the theoretical underpinnings. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: one would think, right?
0: <laughs> one, would, one would think. But I think um, it's, it's a very laboured analogy, but if you think about like computer science and you think about um, a field of study like music performance, right? They mm. they have um, some kind of there are some parallels in the sense that you know there are people who will tell you like to be a good programmer you don't have to go to school, right? To be a good <laughs> musician you don't have to go to school, right? You can do like a boot camp or you can like sit in your garage and like shred all day and you'll you know like it doesn't matter how much you know as long as you can play. Um, yeah. i I don't think anybody like that's that's slightly exaggerated, <laughs> but you can see where I'm getting at right There are very skilled yeah. practitioners um mm-hmm. who don't have a sufficient theoretical background um, and you can also see why in some fields like in software engineering and in in music performance, um there are people who would be like, don't worry about it as long as you can do the job. Right um, but at some point, you have to appreciate the fact that knowing the theory, whether that is the computer science or whether that's the music theory, actually makes you better at the practical part of it
1: Which brings us crashing back to estimating diversification rates <laughs> okay okay, <laughs> rather funnily enough, right no I mean all right th- that is basically the case, right? you know if I have a phylogenetic tree and mm-hmm. I want to estimate diversification rates, all I have to do is just throw the thing into the program, set some parameters up, click run, and it runs. Right. right? And, right. you know, what What this new paper is telling us is that, oh, actually, having some foreknowledge about, you know, the processes involved mm-hmm. may
0: uh,
1: guide you towards a better understanding of what your analysis means.
0: Right. Right.
1: And that's important, right? You know, that, that is yeah. incredibly important. So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, fascinating, all to say.
0: i mean and i think it's it's very hard to appreciate the degree to which um like this type of abstraction just kind of builds on itself the funny thing is um so when i was an undergrad uh, one of the classes i took was um phonetics Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um my professor she told us on like the first day of Of class, just like NYU has the right idea about phonetics because at a lot of universities, phonetics and phonology, um, phonology Mm -hmm. is one, is one semester, right? They take phonetics, phonology, and they put it in one semester. But, um, when I got to NYU, right, phonetics Mm -hmm. was already one semester by itself and phonology was one Mm -hmm. semester by itself. And she was like, you need one whole semester for each of those two things. And yep. why that is, is because phonology is one level of abstraction up from phonetics. Mm-hmm. And right. a lot yep. of places, I mean, I, I'm, I'm speaking um, not from experience here, because I only took the phonetics class. But I think my impression from what she was saying was that a lot of places, they are like, okay, this is all the phonetics you need to know we're not going to go into super a lot of detail and now we're going to operate one level of abstraction up. But <laughs> a lot of places, right, or a lot of students end up um, with a problem because mm. when they are... Prob- it becomes difficult or challenging for them to tell when something is a phonological problem versus when something is a yeah. phonetic problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right?
0: um, Yeah. Are we making
1: a case here for teaching statistics to primary school students?
0: I mean, maybe, maybe (laughs) at some point. But okay, so I think this is another aspect of my appreciation for the CS50 course. And granted, Mm. these are Harvard and Yale students, right? And Mm -hmm. the course moves extremely fast, um, which which you can do because firstly, if you're teaching it in person... It is Harvard and Yale kids. And secondly, if you're teaching it online, right? Um, you have plenty of opportunity to go back and revise as much as you need, right? You're not, you're not time bound in the way that you would be in a, in a physical, um, you know, in person class. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but I think part of my appreciation is that they manage that kind of, um, balance very well. So as an example, um, the the instructor the professor was actually kind of like, okay, so we are going to, we are going to you know this is um I'm I'm going to type up this thing and it involves a data type called a string. Okay, mm-hmm. so because I am me and I was impatient, I was like, okay, I'm going to pause this right here and I'm going to go into the sandbox and like, yep. try and type up type up this thing, uh, and make it work. Mm-hmm. And then I was going like, you know, click, click, click. And it's like, and it kept returning this error saying that it didn't know what a string was. I was like, Jesus. Right. Yeah. And then I was like Googling. (laughs) Okay. Like, you know, how do I make C read a string? And it was like, oh, you can read it as an array of characters. And then, and all that stuff. And I actually (laughs) kind of made it like force fit and made it work as an array of characters. And then I You know, I'm like, okay, satisfied now. Then I click to go on with the lecture. And then like 10 minutes later, he's like, okay, let's compile this. And then he got exactly the same error that I got, which is that. C is like, (laughs) what is a string? And he was like, okay, so here is a little bit where um, we've actually built a data type called a string for you. um, Mm -hmm. So that you don't have to deal with all the, the details of implementation right? Because they've decided, right? He and his team have decided that from the point of view of teaching and getting students to understand um, how computers work, they don't have to understand that C does not have a string implementation. Right. Okay. Right. They've decided that we are going to create a data type called a string and we're going mm-hmm. to give it to the students as as part of a library, right? Mm-hmm. And how we're going to explain it is, first, we'll just use the, the data type string, and we'll show what happens when you try and compile your C program with this data type that doesn't exist natively in yeah. C, and then we'll be like, okay, so everything that we've talked about, right, it exists one level of abstraction up from what this programming language provides by itself. So we yep. give you this level of, of abstraction. You don't have to think about it. Okay. But just so you know, this is what's going on. And if you are outside the confines of this classroom, um, mm-hmm. you will encounter this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it's like, it's very finely balanced. Like, so, right. so to go back to like, do we start teaching statistics to primary school kids?
1: <laughs> <sighs>
0: that's, that's kind of the thing, right? It's like, why throughout the whole of secondary school, you're just dealing with classical physics, right? Yeah. You're dealing with classical yeah. mechanics. And then suddenly in junior college, they're like, throw out everything you know about, <laughs> you know, a, about classical well, mechanics. Dead.
1: Uh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then now, okay, now we're going to talk about this strange thing called quantum mechanics, Right, and I think a lot of, a lot of um, people have this a similar experience as well. Like every time they progress Mm -hmm. one level up in academia, it's like when you go to junior college, they're like, whatever you learned about, like um, statistics or whatever you learned about, like uh, literary analysis, right? In secondary school, we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it differently, and that's because as you, (laughs) the, the funny thing is, as you go up the levels, right, the abstractions that you have to deal with become leakier. Yes. Right? And so, yep, the yep, teachers yep. are like, okay, in order to deal with these higher level abstractions, you also need to understand what they are built on on a lower level.
1: The first principles, basically. Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, which mm-hmm. actually comes back to this thing that, um, that I remember, because, do you remember, I, I've, I'm sure we've discussed this before offline, but um, do you remember how we were taught calculus?
1: Oh, yes. I think uh, you were contrasting how we are taught calculus versus how the Americans learn calculus. Right? Yes,
0: correct. Um, mm, right. Because, I mean, Gosh, at least how, okay. how we were taught calculus was, I think we had like mm-hmm. one class... Limits. ...where our teacher, yeah, was like, okay, here, this is the concept of a limit. All right. And when you do um, calculus, right, Mm -hmm. uh, you are, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to find the limit of this equation, right? Yes. Um, And then once you've proved it once from first principles, right, he was like, Okay. <laughs> Moving right. forward. Now let's leave that all aside. Yeah. That's right. Moving forward, this is the general <laughs> is principle. Correct. This is yeah. the general principle for any like dy by dx. You don't have to worry about delta y and delta x anymore, right? Um, and then when yes. I looked at when I looked at MIT open courseware, when I looked at their single variable calcula- calculus course, mm-hmm. like the first 3 4 weeks, it was all calculus by hand, so to speak, right? It was all limits. It was just, okay, here is, this is the, this is an equation. Okay. Now Mm -hmm. I want to find the derivative of this equation. Just plot, plot it out. Okay. Plot out. (laughs) Seriously, like plot out the derivative of this graph and then find the Mm -hmm. equation of that graph, of that derivative graph, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then at yeah. first I was like, ah, oh, the Americans are so dumb. You know, there's a shortcut, then you know. <laughs> right? Um, kind of thing. Um But then and then I, I didn't finish that open courseware because course at some point I just kind of mm-hmm. lost interest and tailed off. Um But that's then,
1: my experience in general with open courseware, but okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um I mean open courseware is, is in a strange kind of limbo between like edX, which is which right. is, which actually, you know, is a lot more structured and just mm-hmm. reading a textbook. But that's another, mm. ti- that's a discussion yeah. for another time. And then one time yes. when I was in college, um, the Singaporeans at my school, they were discussing how, um, Singaporeans did in like calculus one, two, and three. And somebody mm-hmm. made the comment about how Singaporeans tend to do well in Calc 1 and 2, but tend to struggle mm-hmm. in Calc 3. And part of it is a kind oh. of selection... Yeah, and part of it is a selection bias, which is that, um, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you get to Calc 3, right, if you're thinking about contrasting the Singaporean and American systems, um, mm-hmm. generally, only the most capable American students are in Calc 3, right? Yes. Um, but then you would think that the same would apply for the Singaporean students. Like only the most capable Singaporeans should be in Calc 3 and they should be doing, they should be operating at the same level. But, Mm. um, somebody made the observation that because Singaporean students, when they go into Calc 1 and 2, they often have a background from secondary school and junior college where they've already learned all the patterns, right? And so they are able Mm -hmm. to produce the answers very quickly. Yes. Whereas the American kids, they may not have that background and they are being told to do things from first principles. Yes. yes. And so initially, yep. the American kids will struggle because they don't know the shortcuts. Right? And yes. they have to do things the long way around. But mm-hmm. because um, they actually have that practice of... Mm-hmm calculating the derivative graphs by hand right yeah um yeah by the time they get to count 3 they have a, they are much better at understanding the principles of yes. of calculus and so when yes. you get into count 3 right this is material that neither the american kids nor the singaporean kids have encountered before the Sig- mm-hmm. the singaporean mm-hmm. kids struggle because mm-hmm. they never learnt to do it by hand or they never understood because you we are operating by shortcuts correct they never fully understood the first principles mm. and mm. I thought that yeah. was very interesting yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's really part of the you know it's the pedagogical challenge right how do I teach yeah. enough to make things useful but also yeah. make the student understand that something that's useful is not the same as something that is accurate
1: yeah. And it's, right. it's also, you know, the, the, from from a teacher's perspective, you know, switching switching sides for one moment. It's also the question of how to get students over the initial hump of Correct. the learning curve. Correct. Uh, which is a real pain in the ass to get over sometimes. Correct. Because especially with calculus, right?
0: Yeah. You can't overload them with information. And yeah. because if you it's um there is a there is a, a concept that's very fundamental in pedagogy called the zone of proximal development. Right, which is if you imagine okay, yep. the student, the student's progress as a curve, right? There is a kind of like yeah. band within which you have to remain. Because if it's too easy, the student loses interest. If it's too difficult, yeah. the student loses interest Drops as well. Yeah, they drop interest, out. Yeah. They're just like, I'm not ready for this, <laughs> goodbye. Right, yeah. and um, mm-hmm. part of the challenge of teaching is how to keep the student within that zone of proximal interest, uh proximal development. Right. Yeah. And Does um, that
1: zone exist for Chinese language learning? Because good lord <laughs> it,
0: I mean th- here's the thing. It exists in any kind of, really when you think about it, it exists in any kind of development. So if you think about oh, absolutely, yeah. if you think about from the point of um exercise science, like one of the most basic mm-hmm. fundamental concepts in exercise science is progressive overload. Right? Ah, okay. Which is, you can't, like, for example, if your goal... Okay, so exercise science is is interesting because it is a science, right? And it mm-hmm. is something that, you know, we've put... Um, I say we, but what I mean is like the world <laughs> has put um, an amount of education um, and research into, right? Yeah. And um, the, the things that come out of it are very, in a sense, they're quantifiable. But yes. at the same time, they are also so easy to analogize to, like, a whole other bunch of things. So, right. to begin with, actually, in exercise science, like, one of the most fundamental principles, even before progressive overload, actually, is the principle of specificity. Okay. Which is, okay. Which is every kind of physical activity that you perform is specific. So, if you want to get better at running, you must run.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you want to get better at running long distances, you must run long distances. If you want to get better at sprinting, you must sprint, right? Okay. You cannot okay. substitute okay. sprinting for um, running long distances, right? Or you can mm-hmm. to a degree because <laughs> there is some specificity because you are still running, right? You are still exercising okay. the same muscle groups, but not in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and yeah. I mean, this is one of those things, right, where, you know, people always, they're kind of like, I would like to train for a marathon, but I don't have time. <laughs> right? <laughs> what can I do yeah. within yeah. like 40 minutes a day? Yeah. Um, That's a shortcut, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can take some shortcuts to a degree. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're saying to yourself, I would like to train... Um, to run a three-hour marathon, but I only have forty minutes a day. I think mm. any reasonable trainer or any reasonable experienced marathon runner tell you it's not possible, mm. unless you yeah. already have an extremely strong base from years of running. Yes, right. Yes, and I think that very clearly reflects to any form of education as well. Right, there are some yeah, things absolutely. you yeah. cannot pick up uh, unless you are willing to invest the time um yeah. to do that specific type of activity or that specific discipline sure. then progressive sure. overload right is the the idea behind it is you must constantly apply a stimulus that is mm-hmm. challenging enough to force your body to adapt
1: yes <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, which, which I mean, brings us back to the whole primary school thing. Right. This is not saying that you know we primary school students must learn Manova and you know right. principal yep. component analysis. It's that yep. it takes time to get across the initial
0: hump. Of Correct. First principles. Correct. And right. so progressive. Overload, I, I mean, I do. Th- hmm. It's something that goes both ways. It can't be too easy yep. because then you're not forced to adapt. Yeah. But it can't be mm-hmm. too challenging. That mm-hmm. there are two possibilities. Firstly. It's too challenging. You physically cannot do it. Then yeah. you yeah. you don't produce that overload. So if I put like a right. thousand kilos right on a bar and I try and lift it, um, from a physical point of view, literally no work is being done because that bar is not moving yeah. any distance. And if the, right. there is no yeah. work done, there is no possible overload. Right? No gain. Correct. Yeah. 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 But then um, <laughs> the other side of it is fatigue. Yes. So there is also um, the principle of fatigue management, which is you have a finite amount of fatigue that you can accumulate before you must right. stop. And this is both in a single training session and mm-hmm. over a period of time. Sure. Right? And so if it is at the very edge of what you're capable of and you keep applying that level of stress, at some point you will be forced to stop. Mm, right, yep. and because exercise yep. science is is physical, right you know when you are yep. physically unable to continue doing the work, but mm-hmm. in education, you don't have that physical limit, and it's much mm-hmm. harder to see when a student is like legitimately struggling because they are operating at the very edge of what's possible for them for an extended period yes. of time mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so. <laughs> Yep.
1: This conversation went in rather interesting directions. I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to, to delve into this area today. But I mean, but, like, that's, know, yeah. that's
0: the whole point of a the whole point of the idea of a <laughs> of a monkey mind, right? Jumping around. Yes. Um, <laughs>
1: this has been fascinating. Yep. Uh, yeah. And
0: I, and the which thing reminds me,
1: I need to go into statistics homework as well.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about the thing about um, a lot of these disciplines is when you when you study the you know when you study it in one very specific context it's not necessarily natural to a lot of people who are experts in one area to take it mm-hmm. into to recontextualize it into something else um because generally to be an expert you have to have committed a lot of time to one thing yeah um yeah and i don't think i mean i'm sure a lot of you know exercise science professors have thought about how it also applies to pedagogy, right? But, yes, but I think, yeah. hmm. I think like the lack of the language, right? Like, you know, among, among like people who are familiar with exercise science, I'm sure they can be like, hey, you know, um, you should, you should like periodize your, your work. Periodize meaning you should vary the level of stimulus and the type mm-hmm. of stimulus that you are applying right, yep. for greater efficiency, Yeah. right? But yep. then if you say it to somebody outside of exercise science, they're like, what the hell are you talking <laughs> about? Periodize my work? <laughs> right. So. Uh,
1: no Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, where were we?
1: <laughs> I think that's where we were. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... okay. Oh,
0: yeah, <laughs> statistics, teaching stats to primary school kids.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, that already does happen, right? I think, at least in primary school, children learn about, you know, uh, averages, medians, and modes. Yeah,
0: which, correct.
1: very important, you know, and, 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 and yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, who knew think... that means would come back and bite you in the ass later on when you talk about statistical distributions, right, normal distributions, yeah. <laughs> standard yeah. deviations, I cetera, don't
0: remember, do kids learn Probability. I don't think so, right? I not think in primary the school?
1: syllabus has been changed to move that a little bit further ahead, now, right? If I'm not yeah. mistaken,
0: right? Because but we we
1: never learned, you know, those things when we were in primary school. But I think I you know,
0: don't think I did, yeah. I yeah, I, I, I think actually...
1: you know the situation has changed sufficiently that mm-hmm. you know we're starting to realize that we do need to at least push this a little bit further ahead, just just because.
0: Because so I much
1: mean, it's so fundamental
0: i mean in singapore you don't really have that kind of a um, distinction just because of the way that our curriculum is set up you do kind of see it a little bit in um, junior college when there is you know h1 and h2 mathematics and h1 mathematics actually has a greater emphasis on probability and statistics
1: yeah yeah okay yeah i think not in
0: the not in the material but in the weightage of it Mm-hmm. So H1 mm-hmm. mathematics, which is supposedly lower level, right? Or less yeah. content, actually. Uh, it's not lower level math, mm-hmm. but it's less content. 60% of the content is probability and stats. Oh, is that Whereas, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Whereas H2 mathematics is um, 60% is calculus. Right. Yeah. And um, I think in the American, you know, the, the way the Americans have... Kind of set up their system, which is, which is really like a million different school systems, effectively. Um, Mm -hmm. Advanced placement. There is advanced placement calculus AB, advanced placement BC, and then advanced placement Mm -hmm. stats. And stats is often kind of seen as the, the, the weak students' math.
1: Oh, is that right? Good lord! Like,
0: or it's more of it's more of okay, I won't say it's like the weak student's math per se, but it's because it's a a lot more like, okay, in order to graduate, you need to have a certain number of math classes, right? Yes. And um, if you are a weak math student, right, often the recommendation is take stats rather than calc A, B or B, C. Um, Mm. As your kind of like, as one of your, you know, high-level math classes. Whereas if you are a strong student and you expect to go to college and do something that's science-related, then you should take cult A, B, and B, C, as opposed to stats. Mm. Um, okay. And okay. I think the mentality mm. is not necessarily that one is more challenging than the other, although I think a lot of people feel that way, that cult is harder than stats. But the hmm. other side of it is that um, if you are not going to be... Cult is one of those things where if you need it, you need it, right? Yeah. yeah. But stats is broadly applicable, no matter what field you end up in.
1: Right. No, that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think that's a very fair point. Yeah. Um, I think my understanding, at least, was that that was that was why there was this distinction, and I think maybe that's also why we ended up building our you know H one and H two math systems that way, being like mm-hmm. if if, right, you could only teach a student half of what's in the H2 maths syllabus, which half would you pick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a fair, fair point.
1: Yeah. I don't pretend to know, you know, what CPTT is thinking, the Curriculum yeah. Planning Division. Well, but, I mean, as it, know, as it turned reasonable...
0: out... As it turned out, I didn't take any math in uh, junior college. Um, <laughs> and I didn't take any stats in college. And so right. I actually have no stats at, except okay. for whatever we did at all levels
1: <laughs> I, I, I mean, as a, as a professional scientist now, you uh-huh. know, a lot of the... St- I mean, I'm mostly using stats, but calculus does creep in once in a while. Yep. Although, you know, these th- that tends to sort of apply if you're on the more theoretical bent of the biological spectrum. So, right. you know, if you're a... Uh, looking at say, um, if, if, especially if you're doing modelling, right? If you're if you're mm-hmm. if you're on the theoretical end of the model spectrum, mm-hmm. then you'd be expected to know a lot more calculus than if you're on the applied end of the model spectrum. So you know a right, lot of what right. I do is just taking existing models and just throwing empirical data into the models and then watching the models work like a black box. Um, right. If you're on the end, you know, where you're developing new models, and I have had a small taste of that, you know, you really do see the the nuts and bolts start to come into view, and it it, it it's 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 right. beyond my pay grade at this point. Yeah, you
0: you would have to, <laughs> right? And I think, um, yeah. because it, okay, my understanding of it at least actually is that because when you are actually developing the models part, you're actually doing a lot of is you are adjusting or weighting the coefficients, in yeah. In uh, in an equation, which is a lot of what yes. calculus is. So well,
1: it's not just adjusting the coefficients, but it's just parameterizing phenomena, right? You know, deciding which yep. phenomena are necessary to parameterize in the first place. Which, right. Which we can come to in a in, 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 a, in a different podca- in a different episode. Because <laughs> good God, uh, right? I'm starting to delve into niche modeling, which is a really interesting field, but it's also a real pain in the ass. So.
0: What is niche? Modeling? Niche modelling? Uh,
1: okay. Well, what? N- well, niche if you're if you're from a certain school and niche if you're from a different school. Now, if yeah. I look at a landscape, uh-huh. right, a geographical, physical okay. landscape, now there will be animals that live in this landscape. Mm-hmm. How can I use observational data to predict where these animals occur?
0: <laughs> okay, I agree. Right? I, I so I will have a certain the, amount of, of observations. End. Okay. I, I was like what right. is it? I will have Where I was going with this yeah, is like I... where I was going with this is like what is niche mod- is this like like highly specific like you know <laughs> um you, uh, what would like um like boutique modeling or something like you know whatever bullshit that you can think of I was like okay no, it's no, literally no. you mean like where the animals modeling live a niche of an organism okay yes
1: yes, yes. Bi- biologists are not right. very uh Fancy people, you know, we're we're simple folks, simple of mind, simple of methodology. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, you know, it's it's you know, given n number of observations, Mm -hmm. right, of a you know, limited observations, obviously being limited, right? Sampling is never hundred percent complete. Um, How do I use the data I have to predict where else an organism might occur, given that you know it is impossible or difficult to sample or survey some areas?
0: Right. Okay. So that's
1: niche modeling, and they're in a lot, lots, and lots, and lots of different ways. Some that of which are parametric, some of which are non-parametric, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a it's a fascinating thing that I'm only just getting, so I don't know and you know much about this, but I'm starting to get into this for one of the projects I'm working on. Uh, which right. Is looking at applying niche modeling techniques in a very different direction, but I'll Wait. talk about that at some point in the
0: future. some at some point. So just out of curiosity, before we uh... when the paper is out. <laughs> yeah. Okay just out of curiosity before we uh before we end like today's episode yeah because we have we've been running for just over an hour um five
1: minutes yeah
0: yeah so out of curiosity right so you just finished finishing up your first year in grad school yeah so there is some yeah so i'm assuming you have coursework and you have teaching and you have research right
1: I have not done teaching yet, so not yet.
0: Okay, <laughs> this is the funny
1: thing. Uh, first, you year were supposed grad, to teach first year international, first oh. year international graduate students are not allowed to teach because I see, apparently yes. we need to spend our first year learning English.
0: That's funny. So graduate you know, it's, it's, okay. it's
1: a long process learning English. Um, you know, yeah. n- seeing as English is not my first language, um, <laughs> you know, I speak as a first language forty different dialects of nonsense gobbledygook. Uh, yeah. Hot Swallow, Hogwash, you know, yep. it's it's been an uphill battle.
0: <laughs> uh, that's funny because I know undergrads are not um, allowed to work in their first year unless they get special dispensation. But I think that my understanding of it is just to make sure that people aren't sneaking in as, as right. uh, students and okay. then actually working instead. Um, no, I mean, to be fair, yeah. you
1: know, in, in, in the case of, of the University of New Mexico, I think it's probably just based on this understanding that, you know, you, they get a huge swath of international students yep. coming in from sense. all different... And this is kind of like a, I think, a blanket university-wide guideline. Not yeah, realising, you know, for many people from the colonies, English <laughs> is as much our first language as, as anything else. So Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So out of curiosity... The
1: colonies, sorry.
0: <laughs> out of curiosity, your first year of coursework, what kind of coursework? Um, like, what are the classes, Ooh. I guess?
1: Uh, I've done a, quite a... Well, I, I've done about three or four classes per semester. So my first two semesters, I've done stats one, stats one, uh, Advanced Stats 1, Advanced Stats 2. Mm-hmm. Advanced Stats 1 is basically a rehash of uh, undergraduate statistics, you know. Okay. Which I, I, I was very grateful for because a lot of stuff that, you know, I thought I knew, I didn't really know.
0: Okay. Um, yeah.
1: So things like, you know... Anovas and linear regressions, and then a yep. little bit of multiple multiple regressions, and then stats, uh, advanced stats too, which I'm doing right now is the full on, you know, principal component analysis, cluster analysis, uh, manovas, and stuff like that, which okay. you know is extremely useful because I do not profess to be uh, good at statistics. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's a huge gap in my understanding that I'm hoping to address. So it's it's mm-hmm. good. Uh, I have done one class on population genetics. So that was a okay. very theoretical class as population genetics. Uh, we can talk about population genetics at another time. It's a, it's a fascinating field. And in fact, you know, the paper that I, I spoke about very early on in this podcast, you know, they actually um, liken this whole diversification rate analysis to PopGen. Because population okay. genetics being a, a fundamentally theoretical field has been through lots of upheaval. And right. there's been lots of discussion about parameters that are knowable and parameters that are unknowable.
0: Interesting. And how we can okay. work
1: around unknowable parameters. So for example, and this is another huge digression, what is population size from a population, genetic, uh, population genetics perspective? What does it mean? Okay. <laughs> that, I mean, without going into too much detail, that is a huge field of discussion. Um, right, especially given the, the 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 framework that we use to understand a lot of modern co uh modern population genetics, which is coalescence theory. Uh, which right. I, again, it takes too long for me to explain. But coalescence theory, in very simple terms, looks at the amount of time required for two different genetic states to coalesce into a single genetic state,
0: okay. given a
1: certain mutation model. Okay. Right, and when you look at coalescence time, it is different from real time, actual. Objective, well, ob- objective in inverted commas, time, right? So the amount of okay. time required for a gene, two gene states, or two locus states, two allele states to coalesce mm-hmm. is different from the actual amount of time between, uh, uh, that, that it took for these two organisms or these two individuals to diverge Oof. on an overall okay. level. And so okay. because of this, you create, so coalescence time is basically an abstraction of real time. It <laughs> okay, is a function yeah. of real time. And right. so, in that case then, population size in a coalescence framework is different from a real population.
0: Right. So wait, just so I'm right. understanding this correctly, like when you say coalescence, <laughs> yes. um, that's, that's the time taken in this framework for two separate populations to converge or...
1: Not well, a Coalescence applies to work? the gene, individual gene. So, okay. if I have a gene, right, and there are two versions of it, okay. Right. The coalescence time is the number of generations required for these two genes or mm-hmm. these two different versions of a gene to right. converge into a single. Uh, because this is this is based on the, our understanding of ancestry, right? Okay. You yeah. Know, uh, evolution is that you have a common ancestor and it diverges into mm-hmm. di- two different states.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So so okay. so, so that's that's what coalescence is. It's, it's, I do not pretend to be able to be able to uh, explain this completely. I'll need to reread the textbook again, but it is a, it it is a very abstract uh, concept that, you know, has become deeply fundamental to, to modern population genetics. And um, so what this, this paper was talking about was that, you know, in population genetics, we've had a a very long history, right? Starting from uh, uh, Ronald Fisher and C. Wright, you know, the two fathers of, statistics in general a lot of statistics we do today are were developed by fisher and wright and they are also considered the fathers of modern population genetics right and coalescence is built on uh this 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 foundation that wright and fisher came up with okay it's really complicated uh and again i won't go into i won't go into it today but yeah so you know looking at how um to, to to account for the fact that population is hard to, to explain in population genetic terms, especially in the coalescent framework, we've come up with this idea of an effective population size. Okay. Which, which differs <laughs> from a true empirical population size. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. the, the, the general explanation is this. In a population, right, mm-hmm. in, in an organic population, not... Every individual is number one, a breeding individual, number mm-hmm. two, reproductively viable, number three, has right. huge sexual maturity. So, okay. in effect, your effective population size should be smaller, your effective genetic population size should be smaller than your real population size. Right.
0: Okay. Now, now that makes sense. Because I have, like, prior yeah. to this, I was like, well, how does this not add up? <laughs> All right. Okay. I, okay. So, w- so which so, goes so back to the abstraction at- as well. Yes. Yeah, okay. So when we talk about,
1: you know, diversification rates, again, going back to square one, uh, you know, what the authors of this paper are suggesting is that we need to think about alternative metrics and statistics uh, to try to, you know, more, well, to, to get around the limitations of this methodology. Um, they define some metrics that, that, that seem to have some promise, but the problem is we don't know what they mean in terms of biological reality. Right. And that's what we need to, that's the next step we need to, 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 to right. look at. Which, yeah, okay. I don't have any answers for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's Hasn't fun? This been fun. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so I think I think that's um, probably where we all have to stop for today. And um, yes. show notes at the midpoint this, down the rabbit
1: hole.
0: Yeah, show notes for this episode uh, you'll find them in a podcast player. I guess I've actually this is episode four, I think. So monkeymind.xyz four slash Whenever yeah. this is released which is uh which I actually don't know when it will be because episode three is not done editing yet so uh,
1: <laughs> all right
0: you're, you're, um, I'll, I'll be up when it's up yeah I'll be up when it's up okay I will uh, I will catch you next week in that case yes all right all right bye bye right.
1: see ya goodbye